Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. The topic will be very simply justification by faith, an extremely important central focal point of Paul's message. Our context is this. At the end of chapter 2, Paul has related an incident to the Galatians, an unfortunate incident, where he had to confront Peter on the issue of justification by faith and not by the law and not by the works of the law when Peter refused to sit with uncircumcised Gentiles, thus giving credence to the idea that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And then Paul waxes eloquent on the general proposition of justification by faith. So that's where we are here as we take it up in Galatians 3.1. Paul says this, You foolish Galatians! Who has hypnotized you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? Paul says that, hey, when the gospel was preached to you Galatians, it was very clear. It was vividly portrayed. Jesus on the cross, the passion, the suffering, the nailing, it was all told to you. So you should understand that that's what got you your salvation, not by your works that you do to try to keep the law. You fools. Now, a question arises here. How can Paul call the, the Galatians foolish? How do you reconcile that verse with Jesus' Jesus's prohibition against calling people fools in the Gospels? If you recall, you fools, those anybody who calls his brother Raka fool is liable before the council and is guilty of hellfire and all that. Well, because Jesus was referring to Pharisees who were, who were calling people fools out of spite and malice. They wanted to harm their opponents. Paul here is rather trying to save the Galatians whom he loves, so he calls them foolish. It's just like a father would tell his son, son, you're foolish to go out and drinking and driving. It doesn't mean that he hates him. So there is a difference. So you, this proof, this Galatians 3.1, where Paul says, you foolish Galatians, that proves that no one can make a blanket condemnation of calling someone a fool. You can't do that. Sometimes you can, because Paul did it. Paul says, who has hypnotized you? The NIV has bewitched, an appropriate translation, because it likens the false teachers, the Judaizers, to demonized witches and warlocks. So this is serious business. Paul takes legalism very seriously, as we can see as we go through the book of Galatians. Now, Paul mentions that Jesus was vividly portrayed as crucified to the Galatians. Jesus being crucified was an essential part of Paul's message, just like resurrection was. I've, in previous audios, I've mentioned over and over again how whenever the gospel was presented, it was almost always accompanied with a talk of the resurrection of Jesus. But also, Jesus' crucifixion was also mentioned also. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, Paul says, But we, preached, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We preach Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the crucifixion was very important in Paul's gospel. We go to verse 2 of Galatians 3. I only want to learn this from you. Paul, of course, is being a little sarcastic here. I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just tell me this one thing, Galatians. You foolish Galatians, just tell me one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? or by the hearing with faith. And there you see that constant contrast between law and faith. you got on one hand law, sin, and death, unrighteousness. On the other hand, you got faith, righteousness, and spirit. You'll see that contrast all through the writings of Paul. 
from this point on, from this verse on, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit 16 times. And that's appropriate because living by the Holy Spirit is in direct contradicting to living one's life by the law. Now, when Paul says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, what is he talking about? What operation of the Holy Spirit is he talking about when he says receive the Spirit? I am convinced it's talking about justification, getting saved. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown mentioned that also. Romans 10:17. so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. So when the Galatians heard, they believed, and then they got saved, they received the Spirit in regeneration. I think the next verse kind of seals it for me, because in the next verse, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? As we'll see when we get to that verse, beginning with the Spirit is justification, and being made complete in the flesh is sanctification. And so he mentions justification at the beginning of verse 3, which makes me think he's thinking about justification in verse 2. So we're going to assume that. Did you receive the Spirit? Were you justified? Were you regenerated by the works of the law by hearing with faith? There's some other options. Did you receive the Spirit? That's another phrase for being baptized in the Spirit if you look through the book of Acts. But I don't think that's what it means here. Adam Clark says it's talking about miraculous gifts of the Spirit which is sort of a related idea, but I don't think Adam Clark's right about that. So we're going to assume it's justification. By law or by hearing with faith? Well, obviously it was by hearing with faith. And notice Paul is appealing to their experience. What the, what did they do to get saved? Did they do anything to get saved? He's going to know that they did not do anything to get saved, and they knew it because they that was their experience. He knew every Christian's experience is that way. Now, an appeal to their experience, is a, this is a good thought for those who often inveigh against evangelical pietism, which, of course, is a good thing to do, really, because pietism is not scriptural. The idea, or let's, let's define it this way, if you just say that it's only experience, only emotions, and no word, well, then you've got a really unbalanced view of Christianity. But if it's all word, 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 and no experience, you've also got an unbalanced view of Christianity. Paul often appeals to experience Examine yourselves, brothers, to see if you're in the faith, he tells the Corinthians. That was an appeal to experience, subjective experience. Their experience could have been that they tried to keep the law and they experienced nothing but a sense of wrath and damnation. Well, there's a good hook for Paul to say, okay, you try the law, look what you get. You condemn yourself. You can't get saved. How did you get saved? You believed. That's how you got saved. It was faith, not works of the law. We go now to verse 3 in Galatians 3. Paul continues, Are you so foolish? Calls them fools in verse 2. Now he calls them fools in verse 3. After beginning with the Spirit, that's justification. Are you now going to make, be complete by the flesh? That's sanctification. After beginning with the Spirit, referring to regeneration, Adam Clark mentions that. And then are you going to be made complete by the flesh? That refers to, sanctif- to sanctification. And the NIV Study Bible agrees with that. And I agree with both of them. So what we have here is that both justification and sanctification are done by faith and done by the Holy Spirit, not by keeping the works of the law, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Now, I would ask, how do Reformed theologians, covenant theologians, who are constantly talking about, we've got to work, we've got to strive in order to get sanctified. Read J.C. Ryle, if you don't believe me. Read lots of Reformers. They constantly harp on this idea about we can't be passive in sanctification. We've got to work. We've got to strive to keep the law. And they say the law of Moses, the moral law of Moses, they make a distinction between the ceremony and judicial, but they say you've got to work. You've got to strive to keep the law, the moral law of Moses. 
That's not the emphasis. In fact, I think that's completely wrong-headed. That's not what Moses, that's not what the scripture says. That's not what Paul says. He says, you're going to be made complete by the flesh. And of course, when he means by the flesh, he means by the law. You're not going to be made complete by keeping the law. You're made complete. You're made sanctified by keeping the law of Christ, not by keeping the law of Moses. Now, I will give as a weak defense of the Reformed Covenant theologians here. They What they say is, is that you use the Holy Spirit in order to keep the law of Moses. So they don't say rely on your flesh to keep the law of Moses, which would be out-and-out legalistic sanctification. They don't say that, really. It took me a while before I realized the nuance there. What they're saying is, is that you keep the law of Moses by the Spirit, not by the works of your human flesh, your human weakness. And since the law of Moses is, in many cases, overlapping with the law of Christ, we don't have much of a distinction there, not, not much of an error. It's, it's less of a painful error when you say that you're keeping the law of Moses by the Spirit, because the law of Moses is so much like the law of Christ, and you're not using your human, human flesh to do it. So you see, I'm cutting the reformers a lot of slack here, but I really think they're misguided when they emphasize that. you got to work. you got to strive. Yet nevertheless, it's Christ in me that's doing the work, as Paul always. Whenever you quote those verses about you got to work, you got to strive, there's four of them, I think. Immediately afterwards, and without fail, Paul says, but nevertheless, not me, but Christ who lives in me, or words to the, that effect. Now, that word flesh is very important in... Pauline theology is used all the time. It can have different meanings. It can mean the pink or yellow or black stuff that surrounds your bones, physical stuff. It can mean human effort, the things that you do on your own outside of God. Or it can mean the lust of your flesh, the, the, that principle which pulls your, the skin that wraps around your bones to do evil things. It's, it's not a physical thing, but it's, a, it's an internal spiritual pull an evil spiritual pull, if you will, to do evil things. So that's three different uses of flesh right there. I'll give you a few examples of that. Here's a, a use of the flesh that means outward bodily appearance. Romans 2.28, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. Outward bodily appearance or visible in the fleshly body. is talking about the body there. Philippians 3.3, 3, For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. And there, flesh is human effort apart from God. And so, in Galatians 3.3, Paul is using the sense of flesh in the sense of human effort apart from God. Are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Are you now going to be sanctified with your own human effort apart from God? I'm going to be a good little Christian. I'm going to read my Bible every day and I'm going to witness 10, 10 people a week. And blah, 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 and all the little rules and all the little stuff you set up. Now, there's nothing wrong with setting up goals. I've got goals doing these audios. I've got a daily goal. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'm not doing that in order to make God happy or to make me sanctified. I'm doing that just to keep me on track. Just like an athlete has goals that he, when he trains for you, nothing wrong with discipline. As long as the Holy Spirit is behind the discipline, you're not using those rules to accomplish something in your own strength without God working with you. We go down to verse 4 in Galatians 3. Did you suffer so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? Now, what suffering was Paul mentioning? We don't know exactly. John Gill speculates that the Galatians had suffered reproach and afflictions and persecutions for the sake of the gospel. All of that they had to suffer in order for them to decide to believe in Jesus. Because after all, you believe in Jesus, especially back then, you get persecuted. Was it for nothing? Was it all a waste of suffering? Because you're going to throw it away on this stupid legalism? Adam Clark says that they suffered the loss of free grace. 
Did you suffer the doctrine of salvation by grace alone and not through works? Did you suffer that for nothing? Did you lose it? I don't think Clark is right. I think he's talking about physical persecutions. You suffered all that physical persecution, and if you believe now that you have to be saved by works, then you suffered for nothing because that's not the gospel. You suffered for a gospel that doesn't exist, a, a different gospel, a gospel of works, and it, that is nothing. It is nothing. That's what you suffered for, nothing, if that's what you suffered for, salvation by works, because you ain't going to get saved by works. You're not going to get sanctified by works. Paul has got an idea of wasting his labor on Christians. This is an interesting idea. I had this happen to me once just last year or so, and it was not a pleasant experience. Galatians 4.11, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. You spent all that time working, trying to pour Christ into people, and then they turn their back on Jesus. Oh, and you feel like you've just wasted all your time. 1 Corinthians 15.2, you are also saved by it, the gospel, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. In other words, unless you just wasted all your time in believing in Jesus, you're going to throw it all away. 1 Corinthians 15.17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you wasted all that previous investment in the Christian life. If you, That's what he told the Corinthians. He t- tells the Galatians, if you believe in legalism, you wasted all that investment you've made in your early Christian life. Second John 1.8. Watch yourself so you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward so you don't lose what we have worked for. In other words, I've invested, by golly, I've invested in you Christians and don't throw it away. Don't run back into the world. This is not talking about losing your salvation, by the way. It just means returning to your vomit. Living like a pagan, even though you are a child of God, but you go out and live amongst the the pods of the pigs. Galatians 3, 5. So then does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, by the hearing with faith. Well, God, Paul's already mentioned justification. He's mentioned sanctification. Now he's talking about miracle working. So I would equate that with being filled with the Holy Spirit because you can equate miracles with filling with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts unless you are a cessationist. So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, by hearing with faith? So he, once again, he appeals to their experience. You work miracles, Galatians. How did you do that? Oh, I'm going to be a good little Christian today, and God's going to heal somebody. Or he's going to heal me because I've been a good little Christian. Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. you got to believe God to do, to do the miracle. Now, how does God supply you with the Holy Spirit? John Gill has an interesting idea here. He says that God, or he suggests this, that God supplies the Holy Spirit who brings about conversion through preaching. In other words, it was through the Holy Spirit was supplied to the Galatians by those who preached to the Galatians. In other words, the Holy Spirit was supplied to them indirectly through human agency. I don't believe that. John Gill says, suggests that it could be the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. So does God supply you with spirit and work miracles? I think that's what he's talking about. God directly working miracles because that's what the context is. The word miracles is right here in this verse. We go now to verse 6 of Galatians 3. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, I'll drop to verse 7, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Now this, of course, is a famous quote. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness, Abraham was before the law. There was no law for him to keep. So he just had to trust God. He just had to believe God. Trust and belief are synonyms. He believed God. And what happened? It was credited to him for righteousness. So that's where Abraham's righteousness came from, was from belief, not by works of the law. Now, this idea about Abraham believing God is 
comes from Genesis 15:6. Abram, that was his old name, Abram believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, credited it to him, at, to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. He credited it to him as righteousness. Romans 4, 3, and 5. This is Paul again. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him, as opposed to working the works of the law, but opposed to that, he believes on him, on God, who declares the ungodly to be righteous. His faith is credited for righteousness. So that's a clear concept. Clear distinction between working the law to get saved, to get righteous, or just believing God for your righteousness. And of course, you have to believe what God did for you by sending his son to die on the cross to get your righteousness. Now, Abraham was a good person for Paul to, believe, to appeal to here. It was very smart because he's dealing with Judaizers, and of course, they loved Abraham. And Paul says, okay, well, I love Abraham too, because he's the father of all of us who believe, not who do works of the law. Now, I said that, or Paul says in verse 6, it was credited to him for righteousness. The belief in God was credited to him for righteousness. There's actually other ways you can linguistically read that sentence. You could say that Abraham credited God for making Abraham righteous. In other words, just as Abraham believed God, and it was credited by Abraham to God for righteousness. God is giving Abraham credit, not God giving Abraham credit, but Abraham's giving God credit for giving him righteousness. I don't think so. Or it could be that Abraham was accounted a righteous man by the world, just as Abraham believed God. It was credited to Abraham by the world that he was now a righteous man. No, I don't think so. I think it just simply means that God accounted Abraham as righteous. I mentioned those other two interpretations just for the sake of completeness, not because I in any way believe them. Galatians 3, 7. Well, that's the middle of a verse, so let me read verse 3, 6, chapter 3, verse 6 again. Just as Abraham believed God and was credited to him for righteousness, verse 7, then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons, like father, like son. Abraham believed and was credited with righteousness like his sons, that's us, believe and are credited with righteousness. Now, when we talk about Abraham's sons, this is sort of a, I guess, something that everybody has to deal with theologically because... Abraham actually had four seeds, four types of sons. He had physical seed, and there were two parts of that physical seed. We had the descendants of Ishmael, the Arabs, and he had the Jews, and they were basically unbelievers. And then he had spiritual seed. He had believers in the Old Testament, those Jews and those Ishmaelites that believed in God. I don't know. I don't know of any Ishmaelites that believed in God. I suppose there were some, but any and also believing Jews in the Old Testament too. Anybody that believed in the Old Testament was a son of Abraham, and also believers in the New Testament. Whether they were descendants of Ishmael, whether they were Jews or Gentiles, doesn't matter. They're believers. They're seeds of Abraham. Now we have to keep the spiritual seed and physical seed separate and distinct because you can be a physical descent of Abraham, physical descendant of the physical seed of Abraham and not believe in God. So you can be a physical seed and not necessarily a spiritual seed. And likewise, you can be a spiritual seed of Abraham, like I am, a Gentile, but not a physical one, not being a Jew physically. Here's a scripture showing it's talking about Christians being Abraham's offspring in Hebrews 2 verse 16 for it is clear that he does not that's God does not reach out to help angels but to help Abraham's offspring it's obviously referring to believing Christians John Riesinger's famous book the four seeds of Abraham mentioned the four seeds as being seed number one unbelieving Israel and Ishmael seed number two believing Israel and Ishmael 
Third seed is Jesus himself, and the fourth seed is New Testament believers. So you got to be when you see that word seed, you got to distinguish some things out in your mind to make sure you know what what, what you're talking about. Either basically, is it physical seed or is it spiritual seed? To simplify it a little bit. Now the idea of Abraham being Christian's father, I've already mentioned Hebrews two sixteen, but let's look at what Paul says about it in Romans four eleven and twelve. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Before the law, he had faith. Actually, even before circumcision, he had faith. This was to make him the father of all who believe, the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised. That would be Gentiles. So that righteousness may be credited to them also. So we Gentiles can get saved even though we are not circumcised and even though we don't keep the law. And he became the father of the circumcised. That's the Jews who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of, our, of the faith of our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So even circumcised Jews are sons of Abraham, not by virtue of circumcision, but because they follow in the footsteps of faith of their father Abraham. So Abraham's the father of Jews, he's the father of Gentiles, and it's all based on faith, not based on circumcision. And, of course, circumcision was before the law, but if it's not based on circumcision, it by extension, is also not based on the works of the Mosaic Law. Romans 4.16, four verses later in Romans 4, Paul says this, This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, that's the Jews, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith, that's the Gentiles. He is the father of us all. I mean, it's Jews and Gentiles as well. How can he be the father of Gentiles who don't have the law? It's because salvation is not based on the law. It's based on faith. And Abraham had faith. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, like father, like son. We believe God. It's credited to us as righteousness. So Judaistic legal, legal, legalists, Judaizers, who are screwing up the Galatian churches, get lost. That's basically what Paul is saying here. Galatians 3.8. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Now is that a physical blessing of the nations through Abraham? Paul says no. It's a spiritual blessing because he says, The scriptures saw in advance in the Old Testament, in Abraham's time, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's spiritual salvation, regeneration in Christ. That God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham. Ahead of time, in Abraham's time, Abraham was preaching the gospel. And the good news that was announced to Abraham was, quote-unquote, all the nations will be blessed through you. How are they going to be blessed? Because they're going to believe in Jesus. That's how. Now, John Gill says this blessing, all the nations will be blessed through you, will ne never happen in the time of the Old Testament. I'm not so sure about that. I, I think that might be a little too strong. Because you can look at the time of Solomon. All the nations around Solomon's times were physically blessed by Solomon's reign. He brought peace to the whole ancient Near East during the time of his reign. But that was not obviously the main fulfillment, even, even if I'm right about that and Gil is wrong. It, it, that's not the main fulfillment. The main fulfillment is that all the nations are going to be blessed through Abraham. Let's look at some scriptures that say that, Acts 3.25, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, And all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. This is addressed to Christians here. And he says that you are fulfill fulfillment of that promise, that all the nations, all the families of the earth, it says here, will be blessed through, the through your offspring. 
through Abraham's offspring. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's the promise to Abraham directly in the Old Testament. It's repeated in Genesis 18, 18. Abraham is to become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. The promise that all the nations of the earth will be blessed by Abraham is repeated in Genesis 22:18, And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring, because you have obeyed my command. Jesus said in John 8:56, Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. He saw it and rejoiced. So you see, even in the Old Testament, the idea that God was going to bless the nations was seen in the Old Testament of Abraham. Jesus confirms that, and the blessing was is that all the Gentiles, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles are going to be blessed by justification by faith. The gospel, the good news. By the way, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation here says that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham. That's the gospel. Good news is just a different translation for gospel. Abraham had the gospel in his head in the Old Testament. In advance, now he might not have been conscious of it, but he had the promise that all the nations were going to be blessed through Abraham. And that blessing was by faith, not by keeping the works of the law. Abraham is not Moses. He's before Moses. Notice here that the scripture is personified in verse 8 of Galatians 3. Now the scripture saw in advance. The scripture is made to see like a human being. It's personified. The NIV study Bible says that calls attention to its divine origin. It certainly does. Here's another place where the scripture is personified. 1 Timothy 5.18, for the scripture says, has the scripture talking like a human being. The scripture was important to the Old Testament, to the, to the New Testament Christians. Well, the Old Testament Christians too. It was extremely important. It was not denigrated like it is constantly being doing by, done to by liberals in the 21st century and in the 20th century and in the 19th century. We go now to Galatians chapter 3, verse 9. Paul says this, So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Again, like father, like son. Father Abraham had faith, and then we have faith, and we're blessed along with Abraham. Abraham had a bunch of land given to him. We have spiritual blessings given to us. Now, the idea of Abraham as a man of faith is developed at length in Romans 4, which we won't go through for the sake of time. But let me mention here in Hebrews 11:8 through 19, the idea of Abraham having faith. By faith, Abraham, this is Hebrews 11, starting with verse 8, going all the way through verse 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. Isn't that what faith is? Not knowing where you're going, not seeing, but believing. By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Of course, that city is the New Jerusalem, the church. He was looking for that, even though he was going to a physical place in, in the Middle East. By faith... Even Sarah herself, when she was made to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, that's Abraham, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. And, of course, that's not just talking about physical Jews. That's talking about all the Gentile believers, as well as Jewish believers, everybody who believes in Abraham. These all died in faith without having received the promises, Abraham and Sarah, but they saw them from a distance, all these other heroes of faith. They saw these promises from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. The earth is not where our inheritance is, folks. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
and the homeland is heaven. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return, but they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and he was offering his unique son, the one that had been said about. Your seed will be traced through Isaac. Hard to give up your the one son that the promise is supposed to go through. You're going to get him, let him get killed? That's the end of the promise. But God's faithful to his promise. He considered, that's Abraham, considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead as an illustration he received him back. Well, there are some faith, folks. Faith, 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 faith on the part of Abraham, and we're sons of Abraham. Verse 9, Galatians 3, So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. We just need to believe God. Now, this is very encouraging as I read this stuff because I'm sitting right here in the middle of the coronavirus. People are talking about great depressions and epidemics and pandemics and ventilators running out and people dying in the hospitals and all. You know, it's a great time to believe in God right now. Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Let's just stop right there. You want to try to do good and be a good Christian and come up with your laws, use the law of Christ or the law of Moses as a standard by which you, by which you are going to which you are going to fulfill by your human efforts. Guess what? You are under a curse. You will be miserable. You will squeeze every last ounce, every last milliliter of spirituality out of your life, and you will be a corpse of a human being, hollow-eyed, miserable a disgrace to the church of Christ, a horrible witness, and a disaster. For all who rely on the works of the law and are accursed. Now, it doesn't say all who do the works of the law, because obviously we believe in Jesus, we do do good works, but not as the root of our salvation, but as the fruit of our salvation. But Paul doesn't say all who do the works of the law and are accursed. We're doing the works of the law, but we're not under a curse, because we're not doing the works for salvation. We are not relying on our good works for salvation for all who rely on the works of the law under a curse because it is written everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed now paul is quoting here deuteronomy 27:26 anyone who does not put the works the words of this law into practice is cursed and all the people will say amen anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed now Deuteronomy doesn't say all the words or every word of the law into practice, but it's implied. Paul just goes ahead and adds the word. Everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Deuteronomy implies it. Paul in Galatians explicitly states it. You've got to do everything. You've got to keep the law perfectly to keep from getting cursed. And guess what? You ain't going to do it. It's not going to happen. How do we know it's not going to happen? Let's read James 2.10. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet fails in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Not who's going to keep the law perfectly except for Jesus. Nobody. Even the most sin-inebriated heathen knows that. We go to Galatians 3 verse 11. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. He's already said it. He's summarizing it again. Here's the famous verse here that Paul is quoting. Habakkuk. 2-4. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity. That's the person who's trying to keep the law. <laughs> the person whose ego is inflated and without integrity. But the righteous one will live by his faith. And live, as the NIV study Bible points out, means almost the same thing as will be justified. Because when you are justified, you live. You don't. You receive eternal life. But the righteous one will live by his faith. Justified, of course, means to be declared righteous before God, legally declared before righteous before God, so that you do not have to suffer the curse, the 
the legal penalties of the law. We ain't justified by the law, folks. We live by faith. I mean, what could be clearer? Galatians 3.12, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. There's that eternal conflict or eternal contrast between the law and faith. The law is not based on faith. Righteousness is based on faith. But the law, instead, the one who does these things will live by them. In other words, there the contrast is between believing God and doing the law, the one who does these things. And, of course, Paul knows that you can't do those things. The scripture, the law itself says that life came from keeping the law. Leviticus 18.5, keep my statutes and ordinances. A person will live if he does them, if he does them. I am Yahweh. Romans 2.13, for the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. And, of course, you can't keep the law perfectly. Romans 10.5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law. The one who does these things will live by them. Now, I might point out that there's sort of an ambiguity on doing. Paul is talking about doing the law perfectly. In the Old Testament, the idea is if you do the law generally, not perfectly, because you can't do it perfectly, but if you generally be a good Jew, just like you could say a good American citizen, you're going to be better off than if you violate the law every time you turn around and end up in jail, end up executed for being a criminal. But Paul is talking about doing the law perfectly, and that's not going to make you justified. Galatians 3.13, Paul continues, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Now, the law had penalties attached to the law, sanctions. If the law was broken, punishment came. There was a curse that came on people who broke the law. Now, Jesus, being hung up on a tree, was cursed. He was experiencing the penalties of the law. How do we know he was cursed according to the law? Because in Deuteronomy 21:23 we read this. You are not, this is the law, the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy. You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight. That's an executed criminal. You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So any criminal that was hung on a tree, was crucified, was under God's curse. And since Jesus was hung on a tree... He was crucified on the cross. He was a curse because he was bearing the sins of the world. So he became a curse for us instead of us. He was cursed instead of us for us. And because he was cursed for us, thus satisfying the sanctions of the law, of God's holy law, he suffered the punishment we don't have to because God thereby, Jesus thereby, by dying on the cross, has redeemed us from that curse, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, what does redeem mean? Here's a good homely analogy. You want to hock your guitar at a pawn shop. You give the, the guitar to the pawn shop owner as collateral. He lends you money. Now, you have to sign a document, which is in, in law is called a pledge. Which basically, if it was real estate, it would be a mortgage. But if it's a guitar, it's a pledge, which is a security interest in that guitar. And so that pawn shop owner has a claim on that guitar if if the owner of the car, guitar does not do something, i.e. pay him back, if he does not do a work of the law, pay him back, well, then he can take the guitar and put a curse on that guitar owner, basically. He says, that guitar is mine. Well, if you want to take the claims of the law off of that guitar, you have to pay the pawn shop owner the price of the guitar plus interest, and so you redeem the guitar out from under that pledge, or as we say colloquially, we get it out of hock. 
we pay the pawn shop owner the loan amount of the loan plus the interest and then that releases the guitar from the curse of the law from the ownership by the creditor and that is called redemption you redeem your guitar it basically means to buy out of slavery if you're talking about people and slaves instead of guitars and somebody owns a slave let's say was poverty stricken man has to sell his son into slavery and then he the man starts making some money again the father and so he wants to redeem his slave son he goes to the owner and said here's the money i want to pay for my son to get redeemed from the curse of the law from the curse of slavery let him come out of slavery and come back and be free again so that's what redemption means it's a rich legal word christ has redeemed us because that law Without Christ, there are lots of obligations that are placed upon us, namely damnation and death, because that's God's holy law, and we haven't kept it, and we're going to die because of it. How does Christ become a curse? Here's Adam Clark's eloquent words, quote, Being made an atonement for our sins, for whatever was offered as an atonement for sin was considered as bearing the punishment due to sin, and the person who suffered for transgression was considered as bearing the curse in his body. We go now to Galatians 3, verse 14. The purpose, that means the purpose of God in sending Jesus, or the purpose of God in in uh, blessing Abraham. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, the blessing of Abraham is that all the nations will be blessed through Abraham. I've already read you those scriptures, but I'll read Galatians 3, 8 again. Now, the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham. Ahead of time means in the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament. Ahead of time, Abraham knew that God was going to justify the Gentiles, or at least Abraham, by faith, knew that all the nations will be blessed through you. Somehow Abraham knew that all the nations were going to be blessed through you. And, of course, that is justification of the Gentiles. Paul spells it out in Galatians 3.8 in the light of the New Testament. So the blessing of Abraham is salvation to the whole world. Salvation to the whole world will come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus, so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. The promised spirit, that means it was promised early in the Old Testament. And these are some scriptures you don't often think of, in, at least I haven't, in context with the, the idea of the promised spirit. Ezekiel 36:26. I will give you a new heart, and this is the whole nation of Israel is going to get a new heart, and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The new spirit, Ezekiel 37:14. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. In that, in that case, the Holman Christian Study Bible capitalizes his spirit because the translators think that God is referring to the Holy Spirit there. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. Ezekiel 39:29. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the house of Israel. And, of course, the house of Israel is the Old Testament people of God, the... New Testament churches, the New Testament people of God, they had the Holy Spirit poured out out on them at Pentecost, John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. That, of course, that counsels the Holy Spirit, the promised Spirit, promised by God, promised by Jesus. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Spirit was also given by Jesus to the disciples before Pentecost. Ephesians 1, 13, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was promised all the way from the Old Testament. It was promised by Jesus to the early disciples, and it came through faith, the faith of Abraham, who was promised that all the nations of the world, all the Gentiles of the world would be blessed through 
faith, and of course that's the emphasis, all these promised blessings, salvation, sanctification, working of miracles, baptism of the Holy Spirit, anything that comes to the anything spiritual that comes to Christians comes through faith, not by keeping the works of the law. I cannot emphasize this enough. I'm telling you, every Christian by his nature, when he gets born again, he will have to deal with his flesh and the the temptation to try to do good works in order to please God. It is natural. It happens to every Christian. Every young Christian I ever talk to, I immediately tell them as soon as I can, doing Bible studies or whatever, I say, this is something you're going to have to look out for because every Christian has a problem with this. And look at the New Testament. How much time did Paul deal spending with legalism? How much time did Paul spend on dealing with legalism? Over and over and over again, he exhorts against legalism. And he does so in this first 14 verses of Galatians 3. Now in our next audio, we're going to, we're going to finish chapter 3. We'll go through verses 15 through 29. And Paul there is going to contrast law and promise, which is very similar. The promise to Abraham is done accepted by faith. So it's the same idea. Law doesn't work. It's bad to try to keep the law for your salvation. But listening to the promise of Abraham and accepting the promises by faith is going to lead you to not only this justification, but to sanctification and a godly life. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.